We continue in Exodus today, and we are on Exodus 18. And as I mentioned last week, Exodus 18 is a bridge chapter. What I mean by that is that we're finishing up the first half of Exodus. The first half of Exodus focuses on God's gracious redemption of his people. God redeems, and we see that played out. The second half of Exodus is how redeemed people live, fruit of faith. And so we're going to focus on, in the second half, the law of God, the law for human flourishing that he gives us, and also the worship of God, how redeemed people worship, the law and worship, how redeemed people live. And so this is a bridge chapter. It looks backwards to God's redeeming work. We focused on that last week. And this week, we're kind of looking forward, anticipating what's to come. And so I wanted to speak on it last week. I bit off way more than I could chew, but I love this section. I was really thinking about it last week. For you graduates, whether you graduated from high school or whether you graduated from college, but maybe in a special way, all of us, when we're going through different stages in our lives, and it's of incredible practical benefit to us in our unique callings that each of you has, whether it's as a husband or father, mother, wife, son, daughter, church member, employer, employee, citizen. You have multiple callings, and they're important, and God cares about them and wants to give you instruction about them, and this chapter is really good for that. Um, So we're going to look at it in two points. One is there's just some great uh, general lessons in this chapter for all of us. And then we're going to apply it in a specific way, in a timely manner for our local church. So general and specific. But before we do so, let's read Exodus 18, starting at verse 13. And I'm actually going to add another scripture in there as well. 18.13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. Moses said to his father, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. 
and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided for themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. And now jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This was such an important event. Moses recalls it 40 years later when Israel was just about to cross over into the promised land. He recalls this event. You'll notice the similarities, but there are also some distinctions here in the way he remembers it here. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of all your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with you. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it, and I command you at that time all the things you should do. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, and this good word, it's gospel word, Uh, and endures forever, even to this day, and for our benefit and our good. So again, two main points, the general lesson and the specific lesson. I have, I think, five general lessons for us out of our text today. Um, The first is, throw yourselves into your callings. Students, employees, employers, mothers, fathers, Throw yourselves into your callings. We see that Moses is called, is God's called uh, covenant mediator for the people. He goes between God and the people. And if you recall, he didn't want the job. Do you remember that? And if you recall, a number of times after getting the job, he didn't want the job. Um, Can you identify with Moses here in your callings? And yet you see Moses here, he's so committed to it, diligent, passionate about it, he labors from morning to evening. He desires to spend and be spent in his calling for the good of the people. 
I mean, notice his heart in Deuteronomy 1. May you prosper a thousandfold. Like, he has a heart and a passion for the good of the people. Um, Jethro asks him what he's doing, and he says, the people come to me. What am I to do? They come to me for help, to inquire of God. I'm here for them with their problems. He's available for them, concerned about them, eager to invest in them. And, and that's his desire, even though the same people he's serving here oftentimes don't treat him well. At a drop of the hat, they'll complain and grumble against him. In chapter 17, they wanted to stone him, kill him. And yet, you see Moses, in spite of all that, eager to do them good and desiring their good. How hard it is when we are misconstrued, taken for granted, misinterpreted, mistreated, in our calling, seeking to do good. I mean, mothers, when you're overlooked, and yet he throws himself into this calling, desiring their good. What a model to be earnest in our callings, cultivate a heart for others, even when things are difficult. Second, Be eager to know God's word and will. Be eager for it. And you see that played out so well here. Notice again, the people, the people, some two million strong, the people are standing around Moses from morning till evening. I mean, why such perseverance to wait all day long for their turn to talk to Moses? Why such earnestness to hear God's word and will. Well, this people had been an enslaved people for centuries. I mean, Pharaoh told them to do everything. They, they were under his, his yoke, his, his burden, his bondage, but God redeemed them, and now they're free people, and they don't know how to live as free people. And you see, scripture, in Scripture, freedom isn't just something to be free from but as to be free for. True freedom is to be able to live as we are designed, after God's image, that's, that's freedom. And they're, they're wanting to know what that looks like in this new stage of life in which they find themselves, they're eager for it. Yes, they're a fickle and, and stubborn people, but that's not all, they're much like us. We are that, but they have this desire to know how to live as redeemed people, do you have that desire? Do you see in them this earnestness for God's word and his will? It's like this young man that was converted in a church where I served. After speaking with the pastor, after praying that Jesus be his savior, he immediately looked at the pastor and said, okay, okay, I'm a Christian now, right? Right. Um, All right, now what difference does that make Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, when I, when I wake up and brush my teeth and get ready and go to work, like, what happens now? I mean, that, that knew for him. Or as the pastor I heard recently said when he was in college, guy knew that he was a Christian and had recently come to faith. He finds him out in the dormitory. He says, okay, you're a Christian, right? Yes. I recently became a Christian. All right, I have a question. Do I, can I keep swearing or is that like not something I'm supposed to do? How do I live as a redeemed person? 
And that's what you find in the people of Israel, morning to evening, seeking that out. So Moses, the people are coming to him. He dedicates himself in a general way to teaching God's statutes and laws. Verse 16 and verse 20 is just so important, 16 and 20. He's just positively teaching them God's word, God's statutes and laws. And remember, uh, a great chapter in scripture is Numbers 12, and and God talks about his relationship with Moses. And he says, you know, I give dreams and visions to a lot of people. But I speak face to face and mouth to mouth to Moses. Like he knows me well. Not in riddles, not in puzzles. There's no mystery. I, I tell him my will. And so God hasn't yet given the Ten Commandments publicly on Mount Sinai. That comes next. We're anticipating that. Moses is God's conduit by special revelation of God's will to his people. They want to know it, and Moses is there to give it to them. But not only does he expound God's word to them, but they come to him with all these messes. I mean, how messed up and difficult, most likely, the problems were that they dealt with as people come out of slavery. And so they've had quarrels. They don't know how to be husbands and and wives and mothers and fathers and children. They're coming to Moses and just asking him to unravel their problems for them. You know, sometimes our problems get so big that it's hard to just get a strand and follow it down. And so they're seeking God's will. So one, he teaches God's word to them and then he helps them discern God's will for them. And they're gathering around him, eating it up. They wanna know it. And so when Jethro comes to Moses and advises him to break it all down into groups from thousands all the way down to tens, the group of 10, like a leader over a 10, that's probably a, a, a father of a family. He breaks it down to families. And that's an incredible exhortation to us that God doesn't just want us to know his word generally as a people, his will generally as a people. He's so intent upon it and it's so crucial for us. He digs down to the extended family because we desperately need to order our lives by God's revealed truth in the home we need to. Well, third, third point, uh, general lesson is don't try to do too much. Do y'all struggle with that? You have a host of callings on you. It's understandable you would deal with those tendencies, but we see played out how susceptible we are just to take on too much. Moses is sincere here, but he's not wise here. He's a one-man show. He's taken the responsibility on himself to give pastoral attention to two million people. Um, That stark example is a wake-up call to what we tend to do. We can't kid ourselves into thinking we can do it all. Young people, it's important that you know that early. Um, Something's gonna give. Uh, It's just like the apostles in Acts 6 when they try to do mercy ministry to these widows and they try to preach and pray 
and they realize they fumble the ball and they're just not doing a good job and they come clean and say, look, we didn't do a good job. We need deacons, <laughs> you know? Um, God's limited our powers to humble us. None of us have all the gifts. None of us have superhuman strength. And God humbles us by showing that to us and sometimes it's hard for us to accept. Uh, He humbles us by saying, you need one another. Like, you need to live in community. You need to share leadership with kinds of people that Jethro advises here. Uh, We grow in community. Uh, He humbles us also by just telling us, um, you need to rest. Yet God doesn't rest. At every moment of every day, he's upholding the universe, but you're not God. It's one of the ways you know that you're a creature and that he's the creator and you honor him through your rest. And yet it's hard for us to rest. Our culture doesn't prioritize real rest. We're distracted. We're super busy. Our worth is in our performance and our achievements. And so we feel like we're wasting time and we don't need it. And our passage says, God humbles you by saying, rest. A doctor wrote in a London paper these words. An older doctor, we doctors in the treatment of nervous diseases are compelled to provide periods of rest. Some of these periods are, I think, only Sundays in arrears. You just accumulated them. You didn't take them according to the rhythm God has instituted. And so you end up being forced to take them in big chunks of time because you've gotten in a bad place. And God's saying, Jesus is the Savior and you're not the Savior. You can load it up on him and you can take a rest. Um, How are we doing there? How, How are you doing with rest? I always struggle with that. Are you giving yourself permission to take care of yourself? and making it a spiritual discipline to praise God for being the creator and you as a creature, Jesus as savior, and you not as savior. Well, fourth, uh, be teachable, be teachable. Young people, cultivate an attitude of teachability early. Um, It's so easy to think that we know enough to where we don't need to be taught. And so you imagine Moses here, uh, he went from being this guy who cared for somebody else's sheep in the middle of nowhere to within about, I don't know, six months, a year? I don't know how long he spent in Egypt, but now he's a great Bedouin chief with this nomadic tribe of two million people and he's the guy. Um, Could he get a big head? He could. Could he think he's too important because of his unique relationship with God as covenant mediator that he and God talking to him face to face and who is anyone else that would come and instruct him? And yet you see Moses with all those benefits and all that responsibility being a man who's humble and teachable and looking for counsel and attending to it. Psalm 141.5 says, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. I mean, what a verse. 
Like, let a guy who loves Jesus come and put me in my place when I need it. It's a kindness. Do we have those people in our lives? Moses had a father-in-law that was that way and he attended to him. Do you, have you sought people out like that to speak loving truth to you? Uh, as Keller would say somewhere, we give each other hunting licenses. You know, it's like, I give you permission to zero in on me when I need it. Do we have wise counsel in our midst? Jethro is a wonderful example. Notice this counsel he gives in verse 19. He lays out the plan and then he says, I will give you advice and God be with you. There's some humility and piety there. I've got good advice. I think I know something. But you know, it's not my counsel that really matters. It's God's grace every day. And then verse 23, I give you this advice. May God direct you. And essentially what he's saying there is, I think I have wise advice, but you check it out with God's will before you put in practice. Do you have people that have that mentality in in your life? Um, Evidently, Deuteronomy 1 shows that the Lord ratified uh, Jethro's advice, and Moses realized it was so good, he doesn't even mention Jethro in Deuteronomy 1. He says, I realized finally, the lights came on, that I couldn't handle this all by myself and we put elders in place. Well, finally, in this general section, one last thing I wanted to say is grow in awe of Jesus. And that's really the heart of the Christian life. The heart of the Christian life is Jesus becomes greater and greater for us all the time. And so you look at this passage and you see Moses sitting alone, tirelessly, laboring morning and evening to the people. And when you look at Moses doing that, you see Jesus sitting on his throne in heaven, available, attentive, accessible, with a heart for your flourishing. May you abound in fruit. We see the greater Moses, Jesus, who sits to judge, but he sits to judge because he took your judgment from you. Um... We see Jesus sitting as king to rule over us by his word and spirit, prophet to teach us by his word and spirit. And we see that Jesus does so even though we often don't treat him well. But he doesn't quit. We see that Jesus never gets tired. Unceasingly, he intercedes for you. We see that Jesus never lacks wisdom, praise God. He doesn't need a counselor. And we see that his powers aren't limited. Never a shortage of grace for you. You look at Moses and you lift your eyes to Jesus, the greater Moses. Now the specific lesson for us as a church. So today we're gonna reconfirm to uh, officers. And we're also in a season as a body. It's important for a local church. We're training up six potential new officers right now, four for elder, two for deacon in this passage, and God's way of doing things in our midst is so appropriate. I just said that Jesus rules over us and teaches us by his word and spirit. That's what Jesus is always doing. And yet we need to say a little bit more, that he does so ordinarily by the ministry of men, that he's doing it but he's doing it by the ministry of men. 
His ordinary way is to mediate his authority through men like us, through the church. Um, You're listening to me preach, you know? A person is flawed and as feeble as the next person. But you know something? Through this weak, frail, earthen vessel, you know what God wants you to know? Is that he has words for you this morning that by his word and spirit, he's conveying to you through this weak instrument. Why does God do this? Why doesn't he just rule us uh, directly or through an angel? Calvin says it in two ways. He goes, well, on one hand, God proves our faith by seeing if we will heed his voice through a feeble, frail person who speaks it to us. It's a way to humble us. Will you respect my voice even if it comes through an imperfect servant? On the other hand, God provides for our weakness since if God were to appear here and thunder from this pulpit, we would be under our pews, undone. So this passage speaks about the necessity of church government. And the minute I say the word government, your eyes roll back in your head and you get this big yawn. Do we really have to talk about church government? And we would say, without a doubt, the gospel is what we're about on the Lord's day. It's essential. But as our book of church order says, there's this enormous book that we use to run our church that if you couldn't sleep at night, you could take that book and have much benefit from it. But what our BCO, our Book of Church Order, would say is church government isn't essential, but it's necessary. And why is it necessary? Because you and I are a communion of people, a fellowship, but not just an amorphous type fellowship, We're a fellowship with a purpose, a structured community because we have a a very clear purpose in our lives. And the purpose of this community that we're a part of is to gather and perfect the saints, is to evangelize and disciple. And to do that, we need to be organized together under leadership and accountability. And so this passage treats of that. Uh, It's a passage that speaks in particular about elders. God sets elders over his church to teach and apply his word and to discern his will for the body. And now, one more thing about that is that each and every person here that trusts in Jesus is an office bearer. You bear the office of Christian. You hold an office and you give public expression to that when you joined our church, when you stand in front of people and you make public vows. And you're saying, I'm a Christian and this is what a Christian looks like. Therefore, I'm a part of this community of people and in Hebrews 10, I'm gonna stir one another up to love and to good deeds. This is what the communion of saints is. However, our passage shows a particular aspect of that, that Jesus delegates a special authority to elders to teach and apply his word and to make and enact decisions about his will for a local body for their edification. 
Scripture doesn't describe the church as a democracy where majority rule, but rather as a community or family with representative heads. So we can say the Bible is Presbyterian. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not giving a favoritism to a denomination. We can be in any denomination. What I mean to say is uh, government by a council of elders. A council of elders. Where does the deacon fit into that? Well, well, the deacon is described in Scripture as an assistant to the elders to fulfill certain roles the elders assign to him in order to fill out their comprehensive shepherding ministry, and so they go together. So Jethro here, he comes up to Moses and he says, what is this that you are doing for the people? He doesn't institute the office of elder. Rather, what he's asking is, Moses, you already have a system of eldership in your midst. Why aren't you making use of it? Why have you just taken everything on yourself? You see, God's always run the affairs of his church through representative leaders. Um, Adam was that. Jesus is that. We heard that this morning in Sunday school. Uh, furthermore, in the first couple of, chap first couple of books of, of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, we find that Egypt had elders, Midian did and Moab did, and then a whole lot of attention to the elders of Israel, all the way back in chapter 3. So Deuteronomy 1 says, look, you have the elders, let me choose them for you and put them in place, Moses says. So the elder was an older, more experienced, wiser man who governed God's people. They decided cases at the city gate. Think of Ruth, how they gathered the gate to decide that case. And so Jethro is urging Moses, put these representative heads to work in order to share pastoral leadership in these new circumstances you're in. You're overlooking the resources you have. And so Jethro focuses on certain character traits. It, it's very similar to 1 Timothy 3, the character traits of elder and deacon. And so scripture always highlights character over gifting in leadership. And it's an important point for us because our culture highlights gifting over character. But scripture highlights character. And so even as we talk about character, we also realize that for any leadership, whether it's in the home or in the church, with children in Sunday school, with youth, is that we lead people very aware, as Paul said in 1 Timothy, that I am the chief of sinners. I'm an earthen vessel. Any grace is given to me from Christ. So these elders selected for their judging role had to have four character traits. First, they had to be able men. Matthew Henry says, clear heads and stout hearts make good judges. Men of clear heads and stout hearts. It refers to having good sense, being hardworking, and having courage. In Deuteronomy 1, not to be intimidated by people. And then they had to be men who fear God, and that's really the, the ultimate character trait. It's what real piety is, because the beginning of wisdom, uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the root of holiness. It's this deep-seated faith and reverence for God. As we've said, we're redeemed for relationship. It means for leadership, we're not about our agenda, but God's agenda. Not our glory, but God's glory. And it comes from fearing God. Then it means uh, they need to be trustworthy. And what's going on here is they need to keep commitments. 
and then to act with integrity and honesty. Calvin says it this way, they can't be popularity hunting or they just wouldn't judge well. They'd be susceptible to flattery or falsehood. And finally, they had to be men who hate a bribe. They can't be given to covetousness. So desiring wealth so much, they forsake justice for their own advantage. Character traits like we have in 1 Timothy 3. And so in Deuteronomy 1, Moses has owned this council, has remembered the resources he has, and so we see what he does. He says, well, I recognized I couldn't bear the pastoral burden alone, so I set forth the criteria. You chose the officers, and then I ordained them. And that's what we try to practice in our local body as we seek good leadership in our structured fellowship together. And therefore, it's so important for us as a body that we desire good government. Like vow five is important. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? It's not some kind of extraneous requirement. It's that the people themselves in Deuteronomy said, this is good for us. Like we want pastoral attention and you can't do it all, Moses. Please give it to us. And so we as a body, we appreciate our deacons and our elders who behind the scenes are laboring and spending time and effort and prayer in order to help nurture us in the faith, to teach God's word, and to discern God's will. We respect them and pray for them. And one final thing here. I just want you to see how this magnifies Jesus. In, in verse 19 and 21, on the one hand, Jethro says, Moses, you shall represent the people. And on the other hand, he says, moreover, look for able men. But Moses, you're going to mentor and coach them. But when we see him say, Moses, you're going to represent the people, it makes us think of Jesus again. Because Jesus has all the offices. And a beautiful thing for us to do in our growing in the ability to praise God is to take those offices and think how beneficial they are to me and how much I need them and praise him for them. You see, Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the covenant mediator. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the chief. Jesus is the pioneer. Jesus is the head. He's the elder, the lawgiver, the prophet, the priest, and the king. It's all him. It's all him. And he had to be all of that in order that you, sinner, under the guilt of your sin and the corruption of your nature, in order that you might be rescued from the consequences of your own sin and made a son and daughter of God and kept all the way to glory and molded and shaped into Jesus's image to where one day you're gonna stand before him and see him face to face and at that point, all that you've been laboring for in your callings, to love God in the, in the way he's placed you in this world, all of it's gonna come to perfect fruition and you're gonna see him and be like him because you will see him as he is. Jesus is all that because you need all of that and we have a full and complete gospel. Praise be to God, amen.